Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, we're back for episode 59 of Plastic Model Mojo. We've about rolled another 10 up on 50. I know. I know. It happens to you, man. You blink your eyes and boom, it happens. It's back before Christmas. Seems like it was yesterday. I know. I know. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Been busy at work, busy at home. Uh, we're recording a little later than in the week than normal, but uh, we are recording. Yeah, that's that's important. <laughs> well, what's been up in Dave's model sphere in the last two weeks? You know, good and bad. Uh, generally, I'm getting stuff done. I'm feeling it. Uh, but then again, you know, the last two weeks, all of a sudden, this Ukraine thing happens. And not only are you shocked by that and following the news and following all the fallout from the news, and then, of course, there's the impact on the hobby. Uh, I will admit that I did not realize until this thing all happened. And then on message boards and stuff, people started listing all of the companies that are Ukrainian in origin. It is, I was amazed. I got to say, I was, a, I was surprised at how many Ukrainian model companies there are. There's um, a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of the avant-garde Especially in your scale, Dave. Yep, I know. Are there? And you know, our our Aussie friends at On the Bench covered this a little bit in their special segment. Yep, on their show here that dropped this past weekend, and uh, it's a lot. I tell you, you know, we don't need to just be concerned about that. And I'm not saying they were; they certainly weren't. Right. But, uh, that's that's the way the impact is going to have on our our escapism, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, in in the scheme of things and what everybody in Ukraine is going through and all the horror of it, obviously, modeling inconvenience is a gnat on an elephant's butt. But by the same token, it just did bring into focus that there's a, a, a more vibrant modeling scene out of the Ukraine than I think that I I realized and I'll I'll tell you that kind of that kind of set me back a little bit it it set me on my heels I was shocked I imagine so and I was also I you know obviously I'm feeling the mojo I'm I'm getting stuff done and and then all of this happens and you realize that you know it is truly escapism to come down in the hobby room and shut it shut the world out and all of those things going on to come down and model. So uh, it's, it's been a tumultuous two weeks as far as my model sphere has gone. How about yours? Well, certainly all that, especially in uh, yeah, the last couple of weeks here. I mean, it's all just happened since we recorded last time. Yes. 12 days. Wow. Uh, you know, to get back in the modeling lane, you know, I've been kind of pondering my, I guess we always say, what's our plan for getting better? And, you know, the inspiration just piles up around you. I, you know, I bought a couple of issues of AFV Modeler at Brian's 
few weeks back, three weeks ago or so, I guess it was now, and just all the great stuff in that. And, and then our, our guest last episode, Steve Hustad, you, you know, it's something he said. Now, he, admittingly, he said that uh, you know he's retired, so he right. might he might have a little more model time than we have, Dave. I, I suspect. <laughs> well, that and his children are grown, so yes, I yes. suspect that's the case. But that being said, uh, he made the comment that about 30% of his time or a third of his time is spent uh, experimenting. Make a note of that. We need to have a a future episode talking about experimenting before you or while you're modeling or before you're modeling or before you try something on an actual model. Because I know there seem to be two schools of thought about people who ju- who never do that and people who always do that. And so maybe in a future episode we need to we need to talk about that. Maybe we need to solicit from from listeners whether or not they they are one of those folks when they're going to try something new, they test it out on something or they just go for it on the current model they're working on. Yeah, we should certainly hit Steve up again for some Yes. information on that. You know, I I just that's what it was. It was I need to be experimenting and I'm, I'm doing a little bit of that now on this Musaru cup. We'll get to that a little later in the episode, but uh, there's just all this stuff out there. I want to try and would like to learn, you know, and if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor, man. <laughs> yes, that's right. If you don't know what you're missing, you don't feel it so hard. So that's my model sphere. Okay. A little introspection. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, the, the, with things going on in the world, a little introspection is probably a good idea. So, Mike, I'm assuming that you have a modeling fluid before you. I do. I've got a good one. All right. What do you have? I've got Buffalo Trace. Oh, good choice. Well, you know, good it's choice. it's it's been hard to find in, in Lexington, oddly enough, since it's just down the road in Frankfurt. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a minute, it's made tw- yeah, it's 25 made- miles from where you are. No doubt. And uh, anyway, most of the purveyors here in town have a limit one per customer on that slot in the, on the shelf. So, yeah. And Bullet's still not back because of their bottle shortage. But anyway, Buffalo Trace, Frankfurt, Kentucky. We'll figure it out, and yep. uh, we'll get we'll get the uh, the wrap up at the end. What are you drinking, my buddy? I'm suspecting that you're you're going to have a positive report. Well, continuing last time, I did a Canadian beer for all our Canadian listeners. So this time, I'm sticking with the outside the United States theme, and I'm having a Kirin Ichiban, which is of course. <laughs> A Japanese beer, Japanese mass market beer, at least inside the United States, it is one of the Japanese beers that you that you see a fair amount. Yeah. Um, that and Sapporo. That and Sapporo are about it. And so here's the first taste. Not bad. Not bad. You know what it reminds me of at first taste? No. It reminds me of... You've had Chekvar before, haven't you? Oh, yeah. It's like just a straight-up pills, right? Right. It reminds me very much of of Chekvar out of the Czech Republic. About 5% alcohol by volume and a very similar flavor profile. So we'll get to it at the end, but I think I'm going to be able to report uh, 
uh, fairly good news on that. Well, that's great. I hope you like it. I know I'd like it. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. Especially with sushi. Yeah. Or about <laughs> anything, really. Yeah, true enough. Well, the mailbag is not want for submissions. Well, good. And I'm curious what you got because the, the Facebook messages were kind of rolling in too. So hopefully you got something there. I did get a Facebook message or two. So. so let's get into this. You got it. First up, first up and about fourth up because he wrote in twice. <laughs> Bob Bear from Charlotte, North Carolina, the voice of Bob. <laughs> the voice of Bob. That's right. You remember Bob? His wife thought you were yes. handsome. Yes. Well, no, she thought I was more handsome than my voice, which, again, I'm still working on to figure out if that was a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, we took it as one. Yeah. Well, you, you did. I'm trying. Not saying I didn't. I just didn't take it one way or the other. Other than that, she wasn't talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he enjoyed episode 56 with Dr. Strange Brush and uh, had an aha moment, particularly about the temperature and humidity differences because uh, Charlotte, North Carolina is not uh, Denver, Colorado if you're airbrushing. True enough. That was his first message. Glad he liked Dr. Strange Brush. Yep. Everybody likes Dr. Strange Brush. Now, he wrote in again. Now, he's behind, Bob. You're behind. You're only up to episode 57, according to your emails. That was 56. This is 57. I guess you commented about being a librarian. He, he said I said this, but it wasn't me. Dave's the librarian. Yes, I'm the librarian. That is that is my wife. So he reads some history in addition to you know, all his modeling-related stuff, uh, some science fiction. And uh, he wants to know, do we manage any time to read? And is it outside our hobby, the subject matter? Well, I'll go ahead and take a shot at that. Um, yes, I read, although not as much as I want to, uh, particularly because of my work. I, um, I do a lot of reading for work and a lot of writing for work as a lawyer. So reading for pleasure is kind of time compressed. There was a time when I was a single man and I'd read four or five books a week. I don't have that luxury as a married man with a full-time job and two teenage daughters. As far as what I read, it varies. I completed a bucket list item about four or five months ago. Uh, I, I finished Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, The Gulag Archipelago, uh, which is preparation for the coming communist takeover, I think. But in any event, at least, at least I know what to expect. Uh, I also just finished a Brian Cull book called Diver, 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 which is a an account of all of the V1 attacks on Britain and all of the air-to-air kills by British and American and Canadian and other pilots in the in the V1 onslaught. So. Yeah, I do get to read, and about 50% of it is probably hobby or history related. And I don't get to read as much as I want, because if I've got the choice between reading and modeling, in general, I'm probably most times going to opt for modeling. How about you? 
I've never been one to read for entertainment. I'm really? Not a fi- I'm not a fiction reader. I didn't like it in school. I like, I'm glad I learned to read. Well, aren't we all? I I, I am a 100% informational reader. And if it's not, and I spot read, a book, I'll read to learn what I need to learn. And I I may not look at much of the rest of it until I need to look at the rest of it. And they're usually either technical histories or how-to books that would mostly be hobby related. Uh, They are collector's references from my military hobby. And other than that, it's all working on Volvo stuff online and stuff like that. That's what I do. I hmm. read for I read for knowledge and not much else. I, I I've just never been able to sit down. I catch myself just scanning the pages and not reading anything when I try to read a volume, a tome for fix of fiction or something like that. I just I don't enjoy it. Huh. So you don't read history? So, sometimes every now and then, but it's it's still a lot harder for me to do that and get into it than, uh, you know, thumbing through Neil Stokes' KV book for an hour and a half and trying to figure something out. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, if I'm, I've, I've, I've done some history books and biographies, you know, uh, quote unquote books on tape, though they're not books on tape anymore, but, uh, you know, audio books. I can do that. It helps pass the time, but I got podcasts too, though. So I'd rather listen to those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Bob, that's me. I don't, I don't do a lot of reading, you know, cover to cover type stuff. I, I just don't, I never have. Huh. That's, that's interesting. I read a it's, lot, but just not, I mean, does that make sense? I, I don't, I've never been able to immerse myself in a novel or anything like that. Gotcha. Very, very rarely. I won't say never, but very rarely. Well, I guess I, I I suspect I know the answer to this question. So when you're modeling, where does your inspiration come from? A lot of times when I'm reading history, particularly, you know, aviation-related history, that's where my inspiration comes from to model a particular aircraft or a particular scene or a particular pilot. Does yours come more from photography? Yes. From old, you know, I know you troll German eBay. You're exactly right. Okay. Well, I I can see that. Maybe I should read more like that. I don't know. It's always been hard for me. Moving on. Eric Alstrom from Malmo, Sweden. Now this is in response to the, the listener who wrote in last time after they had attended the C4 open, you know, the Swedish national show. Right. And, uh, I'm trying to see if he says exactly his function as part of this show, because he signed it, Eric Alstrom C4 open. So he is part of the administering body of this show somehow. Gotcha. Uh, he appreciates the mention and we were glad to do it. We don't know a lot about that show, but, uh, uh, it was nice to hear from somebody who had been to it and get their perspective. And he said, we mentioned that judges here don't like weathering. Now, this is where he's going to um, offer a little bit more light onto that. Uh, he says that their judges are very educated in their judging system and father follow a rather strict uh, set of instructions. Um, he says this is done, so they should not follow either, you know, the Nordic school we mentioned or the Spanish school or, or whatever, right? right? Uh, the importance is the model should look realistic and that uh, the 
job, the, the entire job, the paint construction in its, in, its, in its entirety is well done. That means that both a heavy weather and dirty vehicle, as well as a more clean vehicle, should be able to get the same point or uh, consideration as long as they both look realistic and are well made. Now, he sent a photograph of the winner of the best armor. It was a uh, Swedish leopard by a Marcus Ericsson. Uh, was awarded best armor and gold in his class. And uh, contrary to the comment by the last listener, it is weathered, just mm. not, you know, not over the top. Gotcha. Probably just enough. I mean, by comparison, I'm sure there were some there that were uh, were over-weathered or weathered in some of these more... Pronounced styles. Yeah, pronounced styles. But uh, it's a nice-looking model. I would say it's very realistic. We'll have to post that up, so... You know what I learned from this email? What's that? That the Swedes have leopards. I did not realize that they had acquired leopards. I didn't either, come to think. Uh, news to me. I knew the Canadians had. I knew the Canadians had, the Netherlands has, obviously Germany has them. I think the Belgians um, have them. Uh, yeah, but I did not know the Swedes had them. Well, now you do, Dave. I no- normally listen to a podcast and learn something new. I'm recording a podcast and learned something new. It's because of listener mail. That's right. Keep the listener mail coming. Well, our friend Dave Waples writes in again. He was glad to hear that Gator Group Grip is alive and well. Me too. He just, uh, I guess because it's, it's, well, he sent this on February 27th, so that's still wintertime in a lot of the country. Yep. Uh he said when Kenny sold direct, he wouldn't ship during the winter months because this stuff doesn't tolerate freezing. So that's something to keep in mind if you got gator grip glue, gator's grip. Don't put it in the freezer. Don't put it in the freezer. and You may find it harder to get in the wintertime. Uh, Maybe you shouldn't order it from a third party in the wintertime. There you go. Because it's going to get frozen in the mail. Up next is uh, Andy Leffler from uh, the uh, Roscoe Turner chapter, IPMS Indianapolis. I just had a conversation with Ron Young from uh, IPMS Indy the other day. Well, he just uh, wants to point folks to the new club website. It's been revamped, IPMSRoscoeTurner.org. Yeah. And uh, you can register and pay in advance for this show. Yeah. Their, sh- their show is Saturday, April 16th, 2022. If you are in the IPMS region, geography, uh, Dave and I will be there. Yep. All, all things uh, working out, we will be there. And uh, we're going to talk to someone from Roscoe Turner here in the next episode and get a little bit more information about this show. So April 16th, 2022, Saturday. Yep. Try and be there. We'll love, would love to see y'all. Please, if you're there, stop by the table. We'll be in the vendor's room in one of the corners. Nothing better for us than when people stop by and, and we get to... Put names with faces. That's right. That's a lot of fun. It is a lot. Oh, of fun. and listen, that was. I got to say, that was one of the best parts of of the Vegas experience. Was do was uh, just sitting in that vendor room and doing that. That 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 and the late night hotel room experience were, were the two best parts of Vegas. Oh, here's a fun one. Okay, Michael Karnaka from Queens, New York. He is wondering what is the oldest decal sheet and or jar of paint you guys have attempted to use and how it went. I know that I have, I've used a decal sheet 
I've, I've on multiple occasions used decal sheets that were at least 20 years old. In general, I've had great success with that, although you occasionally run into the sheet where as soon as the sheet hits the hits the moisture, the decal breaks apart just because it's aged badly. Uh, a big portion of that is is how you store your decals. And I'm very careful about how I store my decals in a dark, airtight place with plenty of desiccant in desiccant packets in the container to keep away moisture. And if you store your decals properly, they last a long time. As far as paint goes, unopened jars. I know I have some unopened jars of Model Master that are 20 plus years old. And if it's an unopened jar of Model Master in general, 20 years old, as long as it's well shaken and mixed, it's still usable. How about you? Well, I don't know about decals being armored guy. I don't use a lot. And though you can, you can disagree with this or agree with this. Um, when I have had decal issues or mess with old decals, I don't, I don't know how old a set I've ever used, but I know I've played around with some old railroad decals in the past. If the sheet, has started to turn yellow, the backing paper, and it's all curled up. Yep. Odds are that one's not going to work out too well. That That is usually a bad <laughs> sign. You know the two things that, that cause that? Exposure to light and moisture. And sometimes the, the, the acid in the cardboard model kit yes. box can, or the instruction sheet can do it too. That, that's true. That is true too. So uh, if the decal sheet still looks pretty good, it Probably is still pretty good, but uh, you might want to play around with it one with one of the other schemes on the sheet if you have that luxury. I would recommend that. Yes, but as far as paint goes, I got you beat. Okay. Do you do you tell them? Please tell me you're not using one of those square testers bottles. It's square, but it's not testers. Oh, okay. T- t- testers bottom, I think. Anyway. Not too long ago, I was back in the winter, early winter, late fall, I built up a, a Tamiya T-34 turret as a paint mule. Right. And back during my Christmas time off, I sprayed it green with a jar of Pactra Authentic International Color, dark green. <laughs> How old do you think that bottle was? That bottle was, gosh, it had to be at least. 35 years old. Now, had it ever been opened before? No. Okay. That, that, that. When that paint line went away, which was in the 80s. 80s. Yeah. Uh, I bought a crap ton of it at the local hobby shop when I was a teenager. And that's what this was still from. <laughs> now I'm 53. <laughs> and I'm still toting around a whole, you know, those testers carousels you could buy. Yeah. With a little for the square bottles, yeah, I've got yep. one of those, and it's there's no, there's like one bottle of testers paint on it, and all the rest is still all this old Pactor Authentic International colors that I bought when that when that hobby shop blew it out. Well, again, as long as it's unopened, man, it's amazing. Most paints, uh, particularly most enamel paints, will last a, a long, long time, and it worked fine. I yeah, thinned it, it with I thinned it with MLT, and it worked yeah. fine. 
Well, MLT is the cure for everything. Except my empty bourbon glass. Uh-oh. Well, we'll take a break. <laughs> we'll, we'll get a break here coming in a sec. Ah, another show plug. Okay. This is from uh, Jim Unger from uh, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. He's liking the show and our modeling fluid uh, highlights. And his favorite modeling fluid is Corbell Brandy, which is popular in northern Wisconsin. It's cold as hell up there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's colder than a well digger's butt. But uh, a brand, uh, you know, being Wisconsin, you always think of beer as the Wisconsin drink. But I can see how on a cold night, a, a warm brandy would uh, would hit the spot. Well, he's asking us to plug their annual contest, which this year is the IPMS Region 5 show. Oh, okay. Saturday, May 7th. The club is the Northwoods Scale Model Fanatics, and they're located in Eagle River, Wisconsin. The web address is www.nsmpmodelclub.org, and an NSMP Model Club is all one word, .org. You can check out all the information for this show, May 7th, IPMS Region 5 Convention. And uh, Jim, thanks for uh, giving us the heads up, and we'll, we'll post that URL on, in the show notes. I've, I've been to the Region 5 convention on at least two occasions, but never when it was held in Wisconsin. They're a, they're a good group of guys up in Region 5, I will tell you. Scott McPhee, and uh, he's another Canadian, and he's keying into our mention of uh, the show in Saskatoon, BridgeCon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, he says he now lives seven hours north. <laughs> oh, God. Well, that's got to be up by the Arctic Circle. It's village, uh, Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan. All right. <laughs> I'm going to have to go to Google Maps. <laughs> Relatively close to Flin Flon, Manitoba. I hope I got that one right. Oh, my he's, Lord. He's made a video of, of uh, Past BridgeCon on his YouTube channel, and his YouTube channel is called The Steaming Bean. Okay, that, that there, there's got to be a story behind that. I imagine there's so. So, Scott. Holy mother. I'm looking <laughs> at Google Maps. Whoa, does this guy live north? Santa Claus's neighbor. I, I, I'm, I'm betting he can see Santa Claus from his back window. <laughs> and not San, not Santa Claus, Indiana. <laughs> no, not Santa Claus, Indiana either. Well, he says he's going to BridgeCon, so seven hours must be nothing to say somebody can live that far north. I, I, I would suspect it that, God, what a drive. Oh, man. When you, when we're done recording this, you need to go Google Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan on, on your, uh, uh, in Google and take a look at where it is because, wow, I'm glad you're receiving us up there. No doubt. Thank God for the internet. Amen. And finally, from my side is Stephen Lee, Mr. Sprue Pie with Frets, and uh, he's appreciating the uh, promotion over the last couple of years. No problem there. And <laughs> he's uh, volleying, volleying back uh, my minor disagreement on Nitalari's SDKFC 234 armored car. Uh, uh-huh. He agrees that the wheels are craptastic. <laughs> Uh, and apparently they're uh, fixing the wheels and adding photo etch to their upcoming reissue. Well, that's good. Maybe they'll that's tune it up news. a little bit. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've been 
I know you you follow his blog. He and uh, uh, Chris Wallace, uh, model airplane maker, have been playing off of each other on a couple of posts recently. One on inbox reviews, and oh, I forget what the other one was. Oh, hesitation and bucket lists, and. Both of them are really, not only really good modelers, but really good at writing about modeling. And particularly when they go into the more long form stuff, uh, Stephen and Chris seem to read each other's stuff and then it inspires the other guy to to further thought. So uh, there have been a couple of really great posts lately. Uh, where they've done that. So I highly recommend going to both Model Airplane Maker and Sprue Pie with Frets. What what has Facebook provided us this past two weeks? I got a couple of uh, uh, notes or or, uh, messages from Facebook Messenger on our page. One was from Robbie Knopfs, N-A-U-F-F-T-S, and I don't have a location on Robbie, but he was listening to our episode and heard me mentioning that I'm getting a silhouette cutter. Well, there's a really good YouTube video that I had not seen, by the way. uh, And he sent me the uh, YouTube video link so that I could take a look at it. And it's a great entry into okay, you've gotten a silhouette cutter. Here's all the things you can do with it. So I want to thank him for that. And he also uh, offered to answer any questions I had. So I appreciate that. And I will be reaching out. And the other one was got a message from Cody Kaczynski, who's out in Sparks, Nevada. And Cody asked two questions. Uh, One, he asked how I transport my models to model shows. And the other one is, what if you're approached to judge at a model show and you've entered a model? The first one, I uh, my response to him on the first one was, well, what I do to transport models is I actually take a piece of styrofoam and I tape it to the bottom of a Tupperware container. And then I put my models in the Tupperware container on the styrofoam. And then I use toothpicks and use, uh, you know, eight or 10 toothpicks around the model at certain key points. And it holds the model in place. Now it does not keep the model from moving up and down. So you still have to be careful when you transport it, but it keeps the model from sliding from side to side uh, without ever applying anything like tape or whatever to the model itself. So I found it to be really good. I've transported models all the way out to Vegas and back with uh, little or no issue. I mean, you'll occasionally have a wheel that will come off or something, but uh uh, in general, no issue. So that's that's what I do. But there are a lot of guys who do a lot of uh, different things. Um, there's some fairly good YouTube videos out there if you want to take a look. As to question two, my response as far as judging goes is 
Obviously, if you have entered a model in a particular category, you cannot judge that category. My more general piece of advice is that if you've entered a model, try and avoid that entire subject matter. If you've entered in one of the armor categories, try and avoid judging any armor, uh, judge juniors or judge sci-fi or whatever. Uh, but the one no-no for sure is you don't want to judge a category in which you're in. And this happens all the time where people get approached to judge because judging is the most thankless task on the planet. Uh, nobody's ever happy. Uh, it just, but, but the local club needs judges. They can't use just their own people. And not only from the fact that they many clubs don't have enough people, but also they want input from the outside. It makes for a better contest if you have input from clubs from other places. So if you're asked to judge, I know it's an imposition, I know it's a pain in the butt, but but if you're approached, consider judging and following those guidelines that I laid out just a second ago participate. Yeah, it's no fun, but or, or it can be no fun, but it's a good service. It's a good way to give back to the guys who went to the time and trouble of putting on the contest. So those those were my inputs for, for uh, Mr. Kaczynski. Well, that's it. That's it for listener mail. All right. All right. You can send uh, emails to the show at... Uh PlasticModelMojo at gmail.com if you want to do email or you can come through the Facebook page, use the uh, direct messaging system there, and uh, we'll pick those up and uh, we'll have a conversation there with you probably. But uh, as you've seen, we can bring it onto the show after the fact. Yep, absolutely. Now, this is the point in the program where I ask you that to, when you're done with uh, listening to this episode, if you would please go to your podcast app of choice, uh, iTunes or whatever, uh, Stitcher, uh, and rate the podcast. We'd appreciate it if you'd review it. Give it five stars. It helps drive traffic to us. Also, the other thing you can do for us, in fact, the best thing you can do for us is if you've got a modeling friend who isn't listening to the podcast, Maybe somebody who's a little bit of a Luddite, they've got a cell phone, but they don't listen to podcasts or anything. Help them download a podcast app. Help them subscribe to our podcast. Get them listening. Recommendations from current listeners are the best way for us to grow the podcast. And I will tell you, both Mike and I, we keep thinking that at some point, this has to stop growing because there are only so many modelers out there. And we keep being amazed by the number of new listeners we keep getting every episode. So I want to thank all of you guys out there who have recommended us to a friend. And we're not the only podcast out there, obviously. We talk about a lot of the others. You can find our fellow podcasts out at uh, modelpodcasts.com. Now, modelpodcast.com is a consortium website uh, that was set up uh, by the podcast. Mostly heavy lifting was done by Stuart Clark at uh, the Scale Model Podcast out of Canada, but uh, we created this site to uh, 
create a repository for with uh, links to all the other modeling podcasts. So you can go check out quite a few out there at this point. You can get there again with at modelpodcast.com. Uh, we'd also like to mention our blog and YouTube friends because it's not all podcast content that uh, we talk about here. I and mean, we've already mentioned Chris Wallace at Model Airplane Maker and Stephen Lee with Spruce Pie with Frets. They both have uh, excellent blogs. Chris even has a YouTube channel and just a lot of fun, interesting content there. And Jeff Groves, the Inch High Guy with the Inch High blog, all things 72nd scale. And, you know, Jeff also sent us to a link that's uh, got a lot of cell phone and video stuff from uh, what's going on in Ukraine, which has been kind of interesting. It's it's some crazy stuff out there. I might put that in the show link because uh, yeah. show notes because it's uh it's interesting. It's pretty unfiltered. So yeah, you're yeah, getting a lot, you're getting a lot of everything. Yeah this this is the first uh, first conflict where I think you're going to get this level of cell phone video and actual live combat film. And I'll be interested to see what effect that has. And finally, our friend Jim Bates out on the West Coast to scale Canadian TV and plastic posse sellout. <laughs> He'll love that. <laughs> uh, no, Jim's a popular guy. He's been making the rounds a little bit. We got no problem with that. We just thought we'd give, yeah. him, a little, give him a little crap. Give him a little crap. That's all we, he needs that. <laughs> Uh, and if you tune in to T scale Canadian TV, you get to see cornbread and that's worth the price of admission. <laughs> Finally, if you are not a member of your national IPMS organization, that's IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS Australia, IPMS Norway, whatever your national organization is, please consider joining the IPMS national organizations provide a framework that holds together the local clubs. They also usually produce a publication that is well worth, uh, uh, well worth the price of, of subscribing. Remember that IPMS officers are all volunteers. Nobody's getting paid for this. They're doing the work that, and taking the time that they would otherwise spend modeling. If you participate, you can really uh, grow in your model sphere. Uh, I will tell you that participation in the national organization, while it takes away time from my modeling, it also adds to my enjoyment of the hobby in many ways as far as getting to further other people's enjoyment in the hobby. So if you're not a member please consider joining. Thanks. All right, Dave. Well, let's take a short break here and have a word from our sponsor. I think this is where you refill your whiskey. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. We are back, Dave, and it's Wagons Ho for Omaha. Man, the Nationals have to be. We're already in March, so the Nationals have to be getting close. Well, they are close, Dave. At the time of this recording, they are a mere 133 days away. That's close. 
It is close. And I think the big thing right now is sponsorships and making sure you get pre-registered. They're still uh, wanting trophy sponsorships. They've got the uh, the method online to take care of that now. And it's well worth doing. It is well worth doing. We need, we need to get our act together and get in on that. Well, we're, we're already registered. We've already got a table. Uh, we, we've already got tickets to the event at the museum. By the way, if, if you all need another incentive to make the journey to Omaha, I can, I can nearly guarantee, absent some imposition of some government interference, that uh, all of our Aussie friends are going to be at the show. And let's face it, who doesn't want to meet an Aussie? Well, we'll have to show them a good time. I'm sure they can show us one, too. So, for all the latest on the IPMS National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska, please head over to IPMSUSA2022.com. It's IPMSUSA2022.com. And uh, take a poke around and get yourself pre-registered. Get signed up for everything you want to sign up for, if you still can. And get your T-shirt and whatever else you can find on there to do. That's what I would recommend strongly. Absolutely. Do it now. You do not want to waste valuable time at the convention standing in line to get registered. Well, Dave, it's the Benchtop Halftime Report now, sponsored by Tackett Z. Tackett Z, the must-have tools for the model maker. Please check out Tackett Z at www.tackettz.com. Again, we'll put that in the show notes so you can find it easily. Uh, He's got a lot of uh, 3D printed accessories for your workbench. And apparently he's got a new product coming out he announced on Facebook today. It's a liquid of some sort, but he's teasing it so we don't yet know what it is and what it does. So uh, there's going to be breaking news over at his website soon. All right. TagitZ.com. Check it out. Well, Dave, what has been going on on your workbench since we last spoke? Here is the point where you, you're going to have to come up with special music. When one or other of us completes a model, there needs to be some special music inserted into, uh, into the podcast. I don't know what it is, but something, because I've completed a model. All right. The Tamiya Mosquito uh, B Mark IV is done. I'm not going to call it a success because I'll be honest with you in many ways it isn't, but I learned a lot. Now I'm still, I'm still going to use it as a pencil mule for these AK watercolor pencils. I'm going to play around some more, but for all practical purposes, it's done. It's up on its legs. It's decaled. Everything's, everything's ready. I did learn that uh, unless I am really hot to trot on the subject, I will never participate in another group build in my life, (laughs) Um, which I don't know what that means for next year's Musaru Cup, because I suspect you're not going to volunteer to do that two years in a row. I think you have to do it. Oh, I have to do it. Uh Uh-oh. But in any event, the mosquito is done. I will at some point take some pictures of it and put it up on the on the Facebook page. I have not done so yet, uh, partly out of embarrassment by it not meeting my expectations, but also partly just because I haven't had time. 
I have been modeling in addition to that the 144 scale uh, B52 is coming along very nicely. The, the more I work on this kit, the more I like it, the more I'm impressed by it. I think it just goes to show that the quality of molding and engineering of model kits in the last 10 years is so much better than anything before it to the point where it just reinforces my feeling that in general, I'm going to avoid building stuff older than about 10 or 15 years ago, just simply from the standpoint, there's plenty that I want to have been built that has been molded in the last 15 years. And I know they're going to be much better kits, much better models. So that's moving along. And I have just started chipping the M30 wheels for the M30. I'm going to do the chipping on the M30 and get this thing done. And I figured the wheels, wheel hubs were a good place to start chipping because, uh, you know, A, it's going to get must, mud and dust and dirt. So if I screw up really badly, it's not going to be as noticeable. And it's going to, I'm going to use it as a confidence builder to go on and chip the rest of the model. So, Things are moving on my bench. How about yours? Well, things are moving. Uh, at least one of them is. Well, I've been saying, listen, I'm loving the pictures you've been sending me. There's no, there's be no reveal on that till I'm bloody done with it. So to the thing that's not moving, it's the Zist 2. Uh, last episode, I th- was confident that I could paint the entire base black with the exception of the planking for the revetment walls. I don't know if I overestimated or underestimated him how much bounce back I was going to get, even at the low pressures I was spraying, but, uh, that didn't work out. So I got to go back and paint all that planking again. And I've already got it base coated and to me a buff again, which is where I started the first time. And, uh, hopefully that won't take too long, but it kind of soured me on that for a little while. So I've been focusing on this Musaru cup, uh, Gundam build. And that's been going pretty well. Well, speaking of that, let me let me quiz you on the on the Gundam build, right? Because I've seen the picture, so I know what you're doing, and I won't reveal anything. But I think you've do you're doing something smart with it, which is you seem to be trying a lot of new and different stuff, particularly when it comes to painting. Well, that would that would be true. And so, talk about that a little. The the what what you decided to, you know, obviously this wasn't a particular kit that you decided to build on your own choice. So, what what exactly did you decide to to learn from finishing it? Oh gosh, where to start? Uh, the, the the well, let's. The first thing is the way I primed it. Uh, I primed it in Mr. Surfacer 1500 black. First time I've ever primed in black. Mm-hmm. So that was a an experiment for me anyway. And of course, I get a can that's got a crap nozzle on it, but you helped me through that. 
I just pulled the cap off my Tamiya primer and put it on there, and lo and behold, it started working again. Yep. <laughs> yeah, whenever you have a can that stops spraying or, or sprays badly, the number one solution to try is pull the cap, pull the nozzle off of another spray can and put it on and see if that solves the problem. The next thing I wanted to try uh, was kind of some pre-shading on the, on the on the figure before I actually got into the, the actual primary color painting. Right. And to, to give a little information so folks can know kind of where this is going. I I've got a, the paint job on this is, is nothing like the prototype. Well, there's no prototype. It's a fantasy yeah. thing, but I know. Uh, however, this thing was supposed to look, I guess in, in the IP and in, in the, in the anime series or whatever this is from mine's olive green. And what I wanted to try was, Appreciating this thing in a very pale yellow mm-hmm. before I started with the greens. So what I did was I mixed half and half the little bit of, to me, a flat white I still had around and the little bit of, to me, a flat yellow I had around. I got a really pale yellow out of that. I thinned it out really heavily with MLT, uh, Mr. Mr. Color Leveling Thinner, and from a fairly high angle from the top, I sprayed this thing around 360 degrees. So everything that was in shade from my paint direction is still black underneath. And then there's a, a, a varying degree of yellow was built up on top of that with the, with the, with the, uh, the surfaces that were directly perpendicular to my spray path were full yellow. Mm-hmm. So I like the way that turned out. Well, the other thing I, I've never really messed around with are Tamiya clears. Mm-hmm. They're clear colors to be specific. Right. I'm like, well, this could be kind of fun because yellow and blue make green, right? Last time I checked. So I went back on certain areas of this thing and uh, I picked them out in the, in, with the clear blue and shifted those to a kind of a dark green uh, before before I'd start any of the, the olive green painting. So that was the third thing I've tried different on this than I've ever done on any other model. And all this is kind of fundamental stuff uh depending on what kind of genre you're in right right uh but i just never done it being an armor modeler primarily at least some of these techniques have kind of come into vogue since well i just don't finish many models that's that's (laughs) that's that's the the bloody truth right right (laughs) uh so this thing is just i'm building up this these paint layers the next thing with that you know i bought all those mr color uh modulation sets yeah and now i've thinned those colors out and applied those to varying degrees to various parts of the of the model uh, not really in a modulation sense as it the, you know the, the process dictates but uh just kind of doing my own thing with it and using all the four shades that were in that kit to do different things with on the model mm-hmm. so it sounds like you've got like five or six different layers there's a lot of on layers on of this each thing other. that's right yeah uh, and then probably of the newest thing I, I, I wanted to try on this, this thing's got a bunch of engine nozzle cones on the, on the back of it. Right. And I, I brush painted those first with, uh, one of the, uh, one of the Citadel metallics I picked up a while back, the, the more silver one. Right. And then I came back again with Tamiya clear blue and, and clear red Yeah. to kind of do the, the heat discoloration of the metal mm-hmm. on those. It turned out okay. I think these are kind of small and they're a little hard to reach. So I didn't 
quite get what I was after, but uh, I see how I could get there if I had a little more prep time and, and was a little more, a little more, uh, calculated in my approach. I think, uh, that could work out kind of nice. I think it was very smart of you to say, okay, I'm going to take this thing that I've been tasked to build rather than I've been cho- that I've chosen to build and use it to try some techniques that you hadn't tried before that you'd seen and, and hadn't particularly uh, tried. I think that's a, a, a smart move on your part. Well, I hope so. We'll see. I've got this week to get this thing done. I, I think uh, that's not out of reason. I think I can get it done. Um, Good. And it'll get submitted to whatever degree of finish it's at. <laughs> so so what do you think? TJ's going to start his about two or three days from now? I don't know his TJ's status, but uh, it wasn't looking good, according to Scott, a few days ago. <laughs> so unless he's been doing something clandestine. Yeah. Uh, which is quite possible. Uh, well, I don't know he's what- also... He also has the reputation of being a very quick builder. That's right. So, so good luck to him. Uh, he does yep. some amazing things. So, if if he, if he gets it done, I'm sure it'll be good. Yep. So, what's left on this thing? Uh, I got a few more details to paint. Oh, there's is one more thing I tried on this using all these acrylic paints. Um, recessed details. Yeah. That I wanted to change the color of. I mean, not like shade, but I mean. Right. Put in a red or a yellow because it's kind of complement the green. I don't know what would be a good good way to describe it or if it even has a proper name, but I'm, I'm calling it like fill painting or flood painting mm-hmm. where I uh, get the paint a particular consistency that's going to flow out of the brush on its own if I just touch it. Yeah. And then touching these recessed details and just having the paint fill in and just kind of directing it with the tip of the brush instead of trying to brush paint and hit all the lines right and stuff, just letting it fill, fill in. And then if more I got like, go- more like an ink than a paint as far as the, as the way you handle it. That's right. And that's worked out kind of cool. Uh, oh, I good. like that. I like that a lot on, on this anyway. I don't, I'm not sure how I'd do that on a, something more of my, in my genre, but um, it certainly lended itself with all the little nooks and crannies and details molded into this thing. Well, good. So I got yeah, a few I'm, more few more details to paint, and it's going to get a, a wash of some sort, maybe more than one, and it'll get uh, mounted to the base, which is where I'm really hoping to shine. I think I got a good idea there. So. I love the I love the idea of the base. I'm not going to spoil it, but he came up with a great idea for the base. So that's uh that's where it's at, and everybody will probably get to see it here by the weekend. Yeah. It's not soon after. Well, soon after this episode drops, it's got to be submitted. So, yeah, there we go. The next day, in fact, I believe I'll need to double yeah. check to make sure yeah. I'm not late. Yeah, don't don't be late. <laughs> don't put all this effort into it and get DQ'd for being late. That's right. Well, that's that's what's been on my bench. I've worked a bunch of it, bunch of time on the weekend this past weekend, getting it to where it's at, and I made a lot of progress. So. Yes, you did. You put some effort into it. I was getting nearly hourly updates as I was uh, sitting watching my daughter's volleyball tournament all weekend <laughs> this weekend. So I was modeling by proxy, and it worked. So we'll get this knocked out, and I'll get on to the other things and get those going again. Mike, uh, so 
it's been a little while since we've looked over the modeling landscape and seen what's been announced and, you know, thought about, hey, that's cool, or I'm not interested in that. Do you have some faves and yawns that have been announced recently? You know, I, I've probably got some yawns because Itzelary has been <laughs> putting out a big thing or two here recently. And I, you know, I don't really understand where they're at and all this hobby business anymore. But I, I tell you, it's it's been a more, I guess, this whole Ukraine thing is kind of discouraging because of, of what we talked about at the front end. Yeah, um, that was my feeling exactly. I guess it's it's a little selfish on our part, but you know, there's gonna be some things that don't ever get released, or there's gonna be some companies that are gonna go away, probably. And it's just kind of sad, yeah, that uh, that that's gonna happen not only in in scale modeling, but across every aspect of life over there. So yeah, I I don't know, you know, I I, I had a fave, I had a fave that was a Zvezda kit last time we did this. They're a Stalinets SD5 tractor out of, out, out of Russia. I had the the same thing with the ICM announcing uh, KI twenty right. one Sallies. I mean, frankly, it's like Vladimir Putin has determined that I am not going to get a K, a good KI twenty one Sally kit before I die, and that pisses me off. But yeah, no, the, I had the exact same reaction looking at the releases that have been announced and going, "Am I actually going to see that or?" It just it makes you kind of sad. And again, in the in the scheme of things, given what's going on over in Ukraine, listen, none of this really matters. But it still is something that you notice. And and there are gonna be some things that that we probably won't see that we were gonna see, and that's that's kind of sad, particularly if it's something that you were really looking forward to. Yeah, and, and a and a kit not coming out or a company going away is just the just the tip of the iceberg as to what all happened. Yeah, for for that to be the the end end result, I mean, yeah, a lot of crap got went sideways and got turned upside down. It's just just really sad. So I don't know where this is going. Well, and and I hope all of these manufacturers they've all got you know many of them are cottage or small industry, but some of them have significant workforces and you, God, you just pray that they all get through this. Yeah, that's true. Well, one thing we know is there's a lot of people over there, particularly all these refugees that uh, are going to need some help. And one of our friends from over at one of the other podcasts, Spruce Cutters Union, uh, Chris Mattings and Inside the Armor Publications has put together uh, a book with all the proceeds from the profits of this book going to support uh, a relief agency helping uh, the Ukrainian folks who are in, in harm's way and have, have fled the country and are in need of assistance. And Chris recorded an ad for this and we're going to run it now and uh, please check it out. It's not very expensive. It's kind of unique because uh, all the models featured in the book were donated by folks uh, gratis pro bono uh, to do this with. And they're all, kits from ukrainian companies that's cool so it's kind of a cool thing so dave let's have a listen to that hi everyone this is chris from inside the armor publications like many of you i've been watching the news over the past few days and have been appalled by the suffering and hardship inflicted on the people of ukraine as they attempt to flee the war in their country 
I decided to reach out to other companies and modelers in the hobby and to see if we couldn't do something to support the charities that are helping these people. The results of this is the book Models for Ukraine. The book features only models manufactured by Ukrainian manufacturers as built by modelers from all over the world who have gladly and freely given their time and work to support this charity effort. The full profits of the book will go directly to humanitarian aid. Our printer have given us an incredible discount at less than cost and all of those involved have given their work for free. The only thing that will be deducted from the price of the book is the transaction fees and a small cost of printing. Everything else will go directly to humanitarian charities to support people in Ukraine. If you'd like more information, please go to www.insidethearmor.com. It will be sold there and in other sources as I talk to them, uh, make arrangements for them to sell the book as well. Please do buy the book or alternatively, please do find a charity such as Red Cross, Disasters Emergency Committee or others to do what you can to support women, children and civilians fleeing this awful war. Thank you. Well, Chris, we're, we're glad to run that for you. And I hope that uh, is a big success and uh, generates uh, an appreciable amount of money for these folks because it's all just terrible. I mean, my primary modeling interest is Eastern Front. And you see the names of some of these towns that are, that are coming up and it's just deja vu. Oh, yeah. And it's not like these towns all haven't suffered, you know, in, in World War II. And God, you hate to see them have to go through this, you know, some grandma or great grandma in Kiev who was a little girl the, when the Germans came through or then when the Russians came back through. And now she's at the end of her life. And, and this is, I mean, it just, it's heartbreaking. It really is. So as far as faves and yawns go, now that we've depressed everybody, um, my first fave is actually a kit out of Ukraine. I didn't know existed until uh, our friend Chris Wallace, model airplane maker, he had ordered one just as the war broke out. And frankly, he was like, man, is this thing actually going to come? Because he ordered it direct. Uh, and it ended up showing up uh, at his house the other day. AMP makes a 72nd scale model of the X-20 Dinosaur, which was developed about the time that Gemini and Apollo were being developed. And it was the first iteration of the idea for a reusable space plane, ultimately morphed into the, the space shuttle but this was the original concept of that. It never got uh, uh, built and deployed. But like Chris, I've always thought it was something really, really cool and uh, uh, never thought I would see one in injection molded plastic. But there's a company out of Ukraine called AMP, and they made it. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, Chris has one. I don't know whether more will be available or more are out there at some some third-party distributor or hobby shop, but definitely a cool kit. Yeah, it's kind of a little airplane-looking thing. Mm -hmm. When I first 
saw that one. I thought it was uh, what was it the M two F two? Yes, yeah, and it it related to that. The M two F two and the oh whatever the other one was were the lifting body concepts that that the the X twenty also was. It was all in that idea of the of the lifting bodies. Well, is that all you got? Because I really don't have any. I've not paid too much attention the last two weeks because of all the other goings on. I've only got one more uh, fave, and it's actually one that you pointed out, which is that AVI Models is releasing uh, versions of the ALF, the E7K1 and the E7K2. The K1 is the inline engine. The K2 is the radial it's the biplane Japanese early pre-war and early war float plane. It's way cool. Now, uh, Hasegawa did a version of the, I think the E7K1. I don't think they did the E7K2. And that is a, an early Hasegawa release. Uh, so it definitely needed to be updated and, uh, you know, given my interest in all things World War II Japanese, definitely going to have to see these kits and hopefully they are an improvement on the old Hasegawa kits. That's all I've got. I'm, I feel the same way you do. A lot of, a lot of this was thinking about all the stuff that we talked about over the last four or five faves and yawns and thinking, What's going to happen to those people? What's hap- going to happen to those companies? And what's going to happen to those models? And there's f- photos going around of the, like, I was the head of mini art was loading a van up with like commercial drones. So they're right in the thick of it. Stuff's getting real, man. And, like, and I it, know. It, it's sad. And, you know, keep all those folks. If you're of the, of the praying kind, keep, keep all of those folks in your thoughts and prayers. All right, Dave. Well, our special segment tonight is going to be a little bit on 3D printing, kind of uh, initial thoughts and experiences, because I'm all new to this. So, I've got an initial thought and experience, <laughs> which is the, which is the best thing to have is not a 3D printer. The best thing to have is a friend who has access to a 3D printer and is really good at CAD software. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Instead of having to make the invest investment, all you have to do is beg and wheedle enough to, to, to get them to whip up whatever it is you need. You've been doing, uh, obviously this is in your wheelhouse. You've been doing this. You run a lab for a space company that does a lot of 3D printing in relation to basically space payloads and you've also got access to these items for your hobbies at least to be able to test print and and do stuff like that so i got some questions for you number one i understand from having toured uofl's 3d printing lab that the material can vary widely in other words you can print from resins, you can print plastics, you can print heck, you can print flesh, uh, uh, basically biological material. Uh, you can print metals. 
I know you've been printing what mostly in some sort of is it a resin or a plastic on the hobby side you know that what you say is ultimately true but for what most folks in this hobby are going to be experiencing it's all going to be plastics and resins sure so I've gained some experience over the last almost year now with 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 two types of printers in the 3d print market and the first was an FDM printer which is a filament printer which runs off a spool of plastic material of some type we've got uh, um, PLA and nylon and there's there's several others we could get ABS you can use uh, those are the parts that a lot of these folks making these 3d printed hobby accessories paint holders model stands and stuff like that are of their um, of limited precision yeah. because of the way they're formed up and they're, they're not really that useful in my opinion for making model parts just because the, basically it, it's, it's heating up plastic filament through a nozzle and, and, and squirting it out like ketchup into layers mm-hmm. and letting it cool. That's, that's what an FDM printer does in a nutshell. At a so very, basically at a very high it, level. Right. But basically it has trouble getting really fine detail. Right. It can't do a lot of fine detail. Um, Coarse shapes. You can get some nice stuff off of it uh, without doubt, but uh, not like fine detailed model parts. Now, the other type is uh, an SLA printer, which is a a resin printer. An SLA is stereolithography apparatus, which has been around a long time. I I remember when I was an engineering co-op, Gosh, 30 years ago, uh, our model shop at, at was IBM, Lexing- at IBM Lexington at the time became Lexmark International. But we had a SLA machine there way back then. And, and basically, it's using a, a light source to cure, cure a, a UV-sensitive material uh, into layers based on cross-sections and building up a part that way. Uh, those are what all the 3d printed model parts and stuff you're seeing on the market now are printed on some type of SLA type machine. Uh, all the small home printers of that type. And we have two, two machines that do that type of uh, process at work. They're both uh, form labs, uh, form three printers are really capable machines. Now there are, are, are there different types of resins? Just like there are different types of plastics. Oh yeah, certainly. There there are are resins that are made to be biocompatible. There are resins to have some kind of optical clarity. There are opaque resins. Uh, there are re- resins that are be meant to be more tough and resilient than others, uh, just by the nature of how they cross-link when they cure and things things like that. But uh, there's just all kinds. Uh, I I think most of the ones that the are being used in the scale model realm are all of similar type. They're going to cure up to, you know, a fairly rigid sandable kind of plastic like finish. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be capable of uh, rendering the small details you can get on an, on an SLA type machine. Now, if you've been following Mike on our Facebook page and, and him working on some leaf springs for the, uh, it's the, Gas AAA truck? No, it's the ZIS 6. ZIS 6, that's yeah. right. And uh, the the level of detail, now you're working in 35th scale. Right. But the test prints you've done and you've shown us on Facebook, 
it looks like you can get pretty fine detail. I don't know what the limit of the of the print is, but you know the detail on it looks really, really fine. Uh, it's pretty good. I've probably not optimized it yet for what I'm doing, and, and I'm by no means an expert. This whole conversation is not meant to be a uh, a tutorial or on 3D printing from some sage. <laughs> I, I'm quite the neophyte, and what I'm doing is I'm I'm able to use these printers uh, when they're when they're not being utilized at work or I can sneak a job in on the build plate. That's, you know, smaller than something else that's being printed. So it doesn't impact the uh, print time. Right. And things like that. And when the right resins in the, in the vat to be using for what I want to use. Um, and I'm playing with things like print orientation and, and how much support structures on it, all the fundamental things. And it's just, it's been a coming up the learning curve and well, I'm all, I'm also having to service these printers and learn how they, how they work and how to maintain them. So uh, is there not, a lot of maintenance to them? Uh, generally I would say it's not, te- not terrible. Um, one of the issues we have is we got a lot of people using them mm-hmm. and the stuff's uncured is a sticky mess. And it's a bunch of kids to be honest, compared to me, <laughs> they're all <laughs> under 30 and, uh, I sound like, you know, the old man now, but <laughs> get off my damn lawn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Get the uncured resin off the tools, please. That kind of thing. So it's, it's a, it's a lot of work to keep them, uh, keep them clean. But, uh, you know, the, the form labs printers we have uh, give you service intervention warnings and things like that. So, um, they're not hard to take care of it. Now, some of these lower cost home type printers i don't i have no idea yeah uh, maybe somebody can chime in on i don't know what there's like the there's some epax printers i think will pattison's using one of those there's a lot of people using the the anycubic photons i think john bonani just got one of those yeah and he's been playing with that so i i really don't know i i, I don't know uh what the maintenance is like on those i imagine it's similar but uh so far, not too bad. If I can keep people cleaning up after themselves, I think that's the big thing. <laughs> you have to be the adult in the lab. A lot of times I do. Uh, now, you mentioned something that I, to be honest with you, had not thought of at all, which is orientation. So not only do you have to create the part in a CAD program, but then how how it's oriented to the plane of the print yep has a big effect on on what you ultimately get yes okay and is that just trial and error or can you tell there are certain rules of thumb or there are rules of thumb i would say the details you want the sharpest resolution on ideally need to be parallel to the build plate gotcha because then, then the lasers or whatever your whatever the scan light source is 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 forming those in the plane that they exist in, primarily. Gotcha. Like it, it, if you're forming a round circle, uh, you want to form a circle. You don't want it tipped at an angle and and form that circle as you climb up the z-axis, because then gotcha. it's, then it's not going to be round. You're going to lose fidelity that way. And this this is really coarse things I'm saying. 
just general things. And the orientation also affects, you know, where the, where the uh, support structure is. And that's, that's kind of the, for me anyway, it, it's the big, the big gotcha with 3d printed parts is the support structure and how much, how much detail you can avoid fouling up with that because you got to, you got to take it all off. Now to you, when you design a part in CAD and you go to orient it and then print it, do you tell the printer what the support structure looks like or does the printer impose the support structure based on what what part you've given it to print? Well, specifically to the Form Formlabs Form 3 printers I'm using, uh, they have a a uh, proprietary software called Preform that goes with the printers. I mean, anybody can download it and test drive it. I just, I don't think it'll interface with anything else. It might, I doubt it. Uh, but you can bring a model in and you can have Preform orient it for you. And I'm not sure, I don't have a real good idea what the algorithm is that it's using to do that. Because if you orient it once, from the way it comes in to the preform program initially, it'll, it'll put it in one position. If you just go back and hit that button again, it'll move it to a different orientation, which I think is a little perplexing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause if it was picking in its, in its mind, it's the, best. Uh, the computer mind, the best orientation. You think it would default to the same one every time, maybe right? Uh, not sure. It'll also put the support structure on there, but, you have the luxury of going back and editing it, editing it. So I can take off superfluous support structure. And if it's in preform, if you remove too much, it'll highlight the model in red in the area that it's not supported well enough. And you can go back and put one in or reposition it towards not as offending to the detail or whatever, and just kind of work your way through it. So uh, it's a, it's a nice piece of software, I think. For, for doing this, but that's not going to be something unless you've got access to one of these printers. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what else is out there and, and how good, how, how it compares at all, really. Well, that that's, that's good. I can see the advantage of that because it would seem to me like having to build your own support structure would be a tough to plan and be a pain in the ass to do. Uh, I, I would suspect that most of the support softwares for the other printers do it on its own. I, I don't think you're left to create that from scratch. Yeah. I think in preform, I could create it from scratch. I'd, I'd have to try that sometime. I've never done tried that, but I, I've certainly gone in and edited before. Well, given the fact that you can't print anything unless you draw it up in some CAD program, I know that you were playing with CAD programs and then you've gotten in a group where you're getting a lot of really interesting tutorial tips, tricks, etc. Talk a little bit about the CAD side of the whole thing. Well, I, I come from an engineering background. We've just discussed that a lot on this show and I've used in my work history two enterprise CAD packages. I've, I've used uh, NX from uh, Siemens Corporation, which is uh, an amalgamation of, uh, I think, Unigraphics, which I think was Siemens, 
And then SDRC Master Series had a program called Ideas. And when I was at Lexmark uh, for the longest time, uh, we used Ideas and it got sold to Siemens and they merged it with Unigraphics and it became NX. Uh, that one's, you know, none of these are going to be anything most folks listen are going to be able to have access to unless they work for a company that uses it because they're, I mean, they're just prohibitively expensive for the average hobbyist. Sure. I mean, just thousands of dollars for these packages. Plus, there's usually uh, like a uh, a yearly update and maintenance fee as well as just the just the, just the luxury of having the software. Uh, the other is Katia version five, which uh, is what I used mostly in my last job post Lexmark, and uh, I, I really liked it a lot. It, it's it's the one that would tempt you to go find a bootleg, you know, <laughs> not that I would <laughs> recommend that, but, uh, it's like, wow, I wish I could get this because for me, it was really intuitive and I got to be pretty good at it, that one. Um, but for the hobbyist, I'm using fusion 360, which is for the hobbyist is still, uh, last I checked is, uh, zero cost. So that's kind of hard to beat. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's quite a bit of online resources. I am a small group in a small group I got invited to. And those guys helped me up the learning curve pretty quick to, to get to do what I'm, you know, like that leaf spring assembly to, to all the things I could do in Katia, not related to real world engineering, but related to scale modeling. There's a, there's a difference there. Um, sure. I, I, I've gotten into fusion 360 now that I can do just about everything I could do in Katia. You know, I've got an equivalent path to get there and it's a lot of it's really similar. Actually, they just call it something else. That's what you get into going from one CAD package to another. A lot of them have similar type functions. They just give it a different yeah, name. Yeah, different, same function, different name. Uh, but all kind of the methodology is really similar. Once you're kind of versed in CAD, it's not too terrible to go from one package to another. Fusion had a few things that were a little elusive to me. But in retrospect now, once I was pointing in the right direction, they, they weren't that hard. So being able to put that to good use. As you well know... When 3D printing started in the hobby, what you tended to see was stuff that was 3D modeled to make a master. And then the master was cleaned up and used to cast resin. And the part was 3D mastered, but a resin part in the classic tan-colored resin that we all think of when we think of resin parts yeah. for model kit. Well, now, and, and you and I commented on this when there was a vendor at Vegas who actually had 3D kits, uh, armor, a lot of World War I stuff, a lot of unusual. Yep. Um, it's Vargas scale models. Thank you. And they were actually manufacturing 3D printed models and they were in the 3d printed material they didn't use them to create masters cast in resin i'm sure there's some cost thing where part of it figures you know wear and tear on the machine and and the cost of the resin that's used in the printing versus casting resin costs and making a mold and all that but where ultimate, and this is just me asking you your impression of where things are going, 
do you think we're going to be seeing more stuff that's directly 3D printed for the hobby-related industry applications? I think so. As the cost of the printers comes down, it just makes more sense to buy more than one. I, I think that's what Vargas does. He's got a whole stable of printers. Be printing all the time, printing multiples of things, and, and uh, just letting it rock and roll. I, you know, most of what I know, most of what I've bought, well, it's specifically three D printed stuff I've bought. But you know, it, it's all right off the printer. It's not. Uh, it's not mastered. And right. then, then cast in more traditional, like polyurethane resin out of a rubber mold. Uh, some of those that come to mind are like FMC model trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought some of that last year. Uh, we got those TKS tracks from that Chino model company out of Japan. Right. And then most recently, I picked up a uh, a BT5 conversion for the uh, Hobby Boss BT2. Uh huh. And that's from uh, Hellcat Models, which is. Uh, Owned by my friend Scott Demick from way back. I, I didn't. I didn't make the connection. I don't know how I missed that, Scott. But uh, once that deal, once that transaction went through, I realized who I was dealing with. So, made it all the more fun, fun to fun to do that. But uh, you know, that stuff's all right off the printers. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. The best is first. Scott's uh, BT five conversion I thought was was pretty good. I liked it. The Chino model track links is going to be a exercise in frustration, though they're they're well printed. We'll see how as- assemblable they are, if that's even a real word. They look challenging. They look challenging to be nice. Uh, the FMC model trends was a real mixed bag. Some of the detailed periscopes and stuff I got were pretty good. I think some of the 3D printed uh, intake meshes are are not that great. And do you think that was just a limitation of the printing, or do you think maybe it wasn't catted correctly? No, it was probably catted correctly. I, I think they're. I think that's really pushing the limit for most oh. small printers. That's some uh, small cross sections and a lot of holes. Yeah, it's, it's just hard to do. Yeah, hard to do well. But the the price. You know, my impression is the prices have been falling, you know, through the floor. So you're getting more and more capable printers and bigger printers with bigger print platens or whatever they're called. And what we see today, maybe 24 months from now, is going to be completely different. It may be. And I guess another another angle to worth talking about is is the the reception into the hobby of all this. And <laughs> I, I know I won't I won't mention names, but we got a couple of emails from a, from a listener after after Nats that was uh, kind of put out that uh, I guess gosh what was it? It was that Lunar Lander at at, yes. at uh, the Vegas Nationals had won. Uh, I don't remember best. Space and sci-fi, or best something re- like that. Best real space, or something. Yeah, like something that. like yeah, that. And won an award. And uh, th- this person was of the opinion that it wasn't a model; it was a display because it was three D printed. And I'm thinking, I-, I don't know if if you if you just printed it as one piece and it wasn't necessarily even. I, I don't know if you printed it as one one big giant piece and just painted it, maybe. But I mean, if they printed it as a kit you know, out of multiple right. pieces and, and built it and did all the work. Uh, still sounds like a model to me. Well, 
and and you know some some three D printed kits are a limited number of pieces. Uh, that uh, the, what jumps to mind is that starship that uh, Jeff Groves gave, and I built up and printed it was, or built up and painted. It was only five parts. So yes, it's simple. And if you were doing it in injection molding, it would probably be more parts. But it's still modeling to me. Now, I didn't create the the CAD file that printed it, but I didn't create the mold in the Hasegawa kit either. So to me, they're both kits and they're both modeling. They may be different in in some respects in type and technique, but in the end of the day, it's it's still modeling to me. Well, I think, uh, you know, in the U.S., I think the IPMS is going to have to face face it a little harder than they have so far. I, I do. Th- I, I suspect you're right. I suspect the, the NCC, the National Contest Committee, which handles the, the r- making the rules for the National Contest, uh, it's probably a challenge that they're going to have to address in the near term future, as more and more of this stuff comes out, I agree. I, you know, I've, I've got my opinions, especially you know where you draw the line with scratch built. Yeah, uh, there's some folks using the word scratch print, which I think's probably a good way to kind of categorize it. Yeah, um, I think it's a different skill set. Oh, clearly it is. It's it's manipulating ones and zeros as opposed to manipulating stock, you know, evergreen sheet stock. Yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's that's kind of it. It's uh, to get good at CAD is not necessarily an easy thing for a lot of people. I understand that, but but once you have the CAD skills, it's pretty easy to do a lot of things that are not so easy to do with hand and tool. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, how hard I press with an exacto blade or a sanding block can make a big difference on the end product of what I'm trying to make. The CAD doesn't care how hard I drag the mouse or how how <laughs> how hard you hit the print button. How, how hard I hit the print button. So uh, I'm struggling to call it craftsmanship, but it's it's certainly it's certainly it's a skill. It's a skill, but I don't know. I'm curious how it shakes out. I, I am too, and I, I I think that will partly be guided by what develops over the next few years. Uh, the, you know, the beauty of it, though, from from the creator side, is that you know, my like my leaf springs. If I if I find something wrong in the layout, right, I just change it in CAD and reprint it. If yeah. I if I build it wrong, guess <laughs> you, what? <laughs> you're starting over. I'm starting, starting from scratch. Starting from scratch. So, or maybe well, maybe not quite scratch, but I'm you know I got to roll well, the roll it back quite a ways to make the fix, right? Right. But that's the other thing that's going to be interesting about all of this is that once you've done something, just take those leaf springs as an example. Once you've done that to correct that kit to update upgrade that kit and you put it out there for anyone else to do i'm wondering if part of what we're going to see is just this giant library of kit upgrades i think that's already started 
Oh, I think it is, but I'm I'm talking about for every kit out there. And you're going to have all of these upgrades to improve cuz almost every kit could be improved with something. And there'll be entire models out there. Yeah, oh, well there'll be that too. Things, you know, I keep calling this the golden age of modeling cuz we're seeing stuff in injection molding that you never thought you'd see. I think that's nothing compared to what we're going to see when anybody who has CAD skills, a 3D printer, and enough time and interest start making the kits of the fairy fruit bat or whatever it is that is their particular interest yeah. that, that no manufacturer would ever make. <laughs> well, I'm at the front end of this learning curve and the front end of this experience. I'm I'm no expert. Well, you keep learning because uh, I, I may have and, said things tonight. I'll have to retract after I get more knowledge, <laughs> and that's fine. But uh, well, it's a, it's a journey. It's interesting, and I like yeah. the journey. You know, you know how I do yeah, things. So absolutely, this, for me, it's all about the journey. Exactly, and and again. I've concluded that the best thing to do is not have a 3D printer and CAD skills, but to have a good friend who has 3D printer and CAD <laughs> skills. Well, I think that's all we're going to say on that tonight until I get some more experience. Absolutely. Well, I can't, I can't wait to see what you 3D print next because those leaf springs look really good. So, uh, Mike, have you hit the bottom of the glass? And the bottle. I didn't have but one pour left in my Buffalo Trace. But uh, Oh, heartbreaking. It's a very smooth bourbon with not too much heat and a lot of good flavor. Um, if, you can, if you can find it where you're at, I highly recommend Buffalo Trace, it's, especially for the price. It's uh, absolutely quality. It's quality because I, I think it's all eight year. Yes. But they make so much of it, it keeps the price down more like a, a six or a five six. or something. And you can tell it's an eight-year by the deep caramel color of it. Yeah, it's a good one. When you look at it, boy, just looking at it, and you, it just has a deep amber caramel color. And that's the sign that you're probably in for a pretty good bourbon. What about your beer, Dave? You know what? Uh, it, it's empty. Uh, it was good. Uh, it's... Now, they advertise it as first press 100% malt, which maybe that's just an advertising thing. It, as I said, it's 5% five, 5 alcohol, so it's classic mid-range beer. It very much reminded me of Czechvar. Drank just as well, because I love the beers out of the uh, Middle East or Eastern Europe, you know, Czech. Uh, Czechia, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, Germany. Obviously, those guys know how to brew beer and brew very, very drinkable beer. And uh, I definitely can see uh, drinking some more of that. I'll give it a try next time I'm at the Japanese Steakhouse. Absolutely. Sushi, Japanese Steakhouse, Kirin Ichiban. I think I probably would say it's better than Sapporo. So if you have a choice, go with the Kirin Ichiban. So, Mike, uh, we're at the end of the episode. Do you have any shout-outs? I do. We got uh, Paul Pendleton-Brown and Mark Copeland, along with 
Tim Cavalier and Christopher Church have all made some contributions to Plastic Model Mojo in the last couple of weeks and either through Patreon or PayPal. Much appreciated. Really appreciate all the support we've been getting, David. It makes all this worthwhile and we can put it to good use, keeping this train rolling down the tracks. Absolutely. So if you'd like to contribute to Plastic Model Mojo, you can do so one of two ways. You can make a recurring contribution through Patreon. You can go to www.patreon.com slash Plastic Model Mojo. And there you can contribute an amount from $1 up to whatever you'd like. And uh, that will be a monthly recurring payment managed through Patreon. If you want to do a one-time donation or manage your own recurring contribution, you can do so by going to www.plasticmodelmojo.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a heart icon that will take you directly to our PayPal link. And there you can make a one-time contribution to your liking or as many as you'd like. Whatever you want to do. Anything from one penny on up is much appreciated. And we're going to use use this to keep bringing you the best podcast we can. Well, my shout out, in addition to shouting out all of those folks and thanking them again, we appreciate it greatly. I guess it's kind of a theme for this episode. My shout out is to the people of Ukraine, particularly those who were prior to the unpleasantness currently occurring in the model business, either modelers, model makers, model distributors, etc. Our, our hearts and thoughts are with you. We hope you stay safe. We hope that this thing ends quickly and as peacefully as it can. And uh, hopefully we can get back to modeling again sooner rather than later so uh you're in our thoughts and and hopefully we'll be over this all fairly soon well dave we're at the end of the episode and as we always say dave so many kits so little time take it easy mike all right man well we'll see you soon no, okay. my big news. Yeah.